The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome all you hideously scarred scientists and figure-chopping mobsters alike to this bonus episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Normally we're the podcast that re-examines the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine, but due to a violent attack on our podcasting laboratory, we're putting a new face on the show to talk about the film Darkman from 1990 as a bonus treat for you this Halloween. I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. And how did we get here, Michael? Why are we subjecting you to this torture and bringing our listeners in and making them pay five bucks to see the dancing freak? So we were foolish enough back in the start of the pandemic, I think, to post on our Twitter account to say, hey, fans, listeners, subscribers, pick your choice of movies between Meteor Man, Blank Man, and Dark Man for us to do a review of. And the majority all picked Dark Man to my disdain and regret <laughs> and misfortune, I guess you would say. And because of that, I personally will admit that I have pushed this off to the absolute furthest point we could possibly do because I just was dreading having to watch this film, if you would call it a film. So I did. I, I watched it. And... uh I got through it in about five sittings, <laughs> and I finished it late last night. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll get into it. Poor Michael. <laughs> so l- let's just talk about some of the behind the scenes for Dark Man. Sam Raimi came to prominence in the early 2000s for directing the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy, but long before that, he was known for low-budget horror directing cult classics, if you will, of movies like Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. But yeah, those were kind of like his notoriety. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've, I think I've watched the first Evil Dead. I don't know if I've ever watched Evil Dead 2. Yeah, they, they terrify me, and I, and I really can't watch them. I may have watched bits and pieces of it. Other than the fact, you know, the Bruce Campbell element that everybody knows about those movies is is iconic. And yeah, that's all I really have to say about those things. So these movies actually gained a bit of critical acclaim due to the inventive nature of camera work and slapstick elements mixed into horror haunting of Bruce Campbell's Ash character. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts about the Evil Dead franchise? You know more about it than I do. Yeah, so when I was getting into my horror phase in high school and going to Blockbuster, and I was like 16, but I looked older so I could rent terrible, terrible movies. Oh, you gotta be 18 to see them. Not me! So I I was checking them out. So I I rented The Evil Dead, then I rented Evil Dead 2, because I had seen Army of Darkness, and I was like, oh, that's a fun movie. So I went back and watched these. The Evil Dead, the first one is just kind of boring. Like, you see where he's going. Evil Dead 2 
2 is just a remake of the first one and it's much more exciting it's very inventive you know it's got just like i mean there's a particular scene where like his girlfriend's dead body digs itself out of the grave and then she's like rolling her head on her shoulders and doing this dance out in the woods you know by moonlight like it's this super like goofy stuff that's happening so to me like it's more a fun horror movie it's not scary people back then may have thought it was scary i i don't see it that way so yeah i I could definitely see why sam raimi got people's attention with that i even read bruce campbell's autobiography if chins could kill and he talks all about just like the terrible conditions of making those movies and like how the actors were tortured and it was so cold and just all this other stuff these terrible contact lenses or whatever you know so there, there was a lot of blood sweat and tears literally that went into making those movies but I'll tell you, like, you know, a lot of filmmakers get their start by making crummy horror movies and then become super famous because horror movies as a as a filmmaking genre are probably some of the easiest to make on a low budget. And due to the buzz that grew from the Evil Dead films, particularly on VHS, Sam Raimi caught the interest of Universal Studios, who wanted to work with him on a project. Raimi had wanted to make a movie based on like the 30s pulp and radio crime fighter The Shadow, but could not secure the rights because Robert Zemeckis of Back to the Future fame was apparently developing a project of his own based on the Dark Avenger who inspired Batman. So instead, Raimi created an original character and script that was a mashup of The Shadow, Mission Impossible, and the classic Universal horror films. So, Michael, let me tell you something. Unlike you, the minute we got the results of that poll, I went and bought the movie on Blu-ray, and then I went and got a copy of Starlog magazine with Darkman on the cover. And it has a quick interview with Sam Raimi in here, and these are the other influences he lists. It says, quote, It has many elements from many pictures that have gone before, that's for sure, says Raimi emphatically. Phantom of the Opera, Batman, Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Elephant Man, The Shadow, and standard American revenge pictures, too. The idea didn't actually come from those, though, Raimi says during the making of Darkman. Although the story does have elements similar to all of those and more, the movie came from the idea of a man who can change his face to become other people. It was originally a short story I wrote, which was accepted with encouragement by friends. It segued into a longer story and then became a story of a man who had lost his face and had to take on other faces. Then it became the story of a man who battled criminals using this power. And then because he lost his face, the idea of what would happen if he had a relationship before became important. So... Wow. There, there was a long journey to get to the concept of Darkman for Sam Raimi. So the way that's explained feels about how the movie was edited and, edited and cut together, in my opinion. It feels kind of like an amalgam of all those ideas and what kind of vomited out after it. When the film finished shooting, Universal felt that it needed to bring in an editor to cut down the weirdness of the film, making it more mainstream. I can see that from watching this film. (laughs) This frustrated Raimi on his first big-budget picture since the film got high marks for the original cut in test screenings. And with each studio edit, the scores got lower and lower. Literally, just before the film prints were sent out, Raimi spent 
48 hours re-editing the movie to restore as much of the original cut as possible without Universal's knowledge. And by the time the prints got to the theaters, it was too late for them to call the prince back. Wow. Hey, he went rogue, man. He's like, my movie. Apparently, it wasn't even his choice. Like, he had producing partner and supporters that were like, you got to do this. You got to restore it. You got to get it back. You know, so it was a total clandestine operation. Wow. Too bad they didn't have digital editing back then. It would have been a lot easier, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. The film was promoted heavily by Universal with the tagline, Who is Dark Man, which created a lot of buzz in 1990 that led to the film opening at number one the weekend it was released. Oh, goody. <laughs> Despite starring a cast of relative unknown actors, having a score by Batman composer Danny Elfman lent a bit of its previous summer Batmania into the hype around Dark Man as well. And Michael, I will tell you, it grossed $48 million worldwide on a $16 million budget. Wow. wow. So this was big for a lot of people. Not for Michael, but for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, definitely not for me. So Adam, when did you first see Dark Man? Do you remember the initial release? I definitely remember the promotion. I remember seeing the posters. I mean, that was when I was really just getting into seeing movies in the theaters on a regular basis. But, you know, again, it was rated R. I wasn't going to be able to convince my parents to take me. To, so I, I didn't get to see it in theaters. And then I remember seeing it on the shelf at the video store. But again, it wasn't one of the ones that I picked up. It was kind of like, oh, well, that's probably a cool movie. And I like the design of the character. But I just never bothered to see it till probably like a a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, because it was during the rental days of Netflix, and I finally had it, you know, sent to my house on DVD, and I watched it, and then I was just, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, it was a pretty good movie. It was an interesting movie. I'm going to have a lot more to say about it now, but at the time, I remember it wasn't one that, like, I became a devotee of, like, oh, this is a lost gem. But what's funny, I, I got to mention this real quick, Michael, is on the Starlog cover here, it says on the bottom, who will win Dark Man's jacket? <laughs> And so on page 22, it tells you that you can win collector's items from the world of Darkman. So, you know, if you see Darkman, he's got an iconic jacket that he wears, right? That's part mm -hmm. of his costumes. And he pulls out of a dumpster. Yeah, pulls out of a dumpster. He's got his hat. He's got his jacket. Very the shadow. And you expect that you're going to be able to win one of the jackets he wore in the movie. But... That is not the case, it says. And the prizes? Through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, they are. The first prize, an official Darkman jacket. But this is like a Darkman, like, you know, with the name embroidered on it. Like those, like, like the, like the vinyl jackets? Like a yeah. barber jacket style? Yeah. <laughs> an official Darkman t-shirt for the second prize. And the third prize, an official Darkman movie poster. So going all out for the fans. So I actually saw this movie on VHS in the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know how I was able to rent it or something like that, but I, I remember wanting to see it. I was very interested in it, and I remember the advertising a lot because I just remember all the – like there's elements of explosions in the commercials and just like this – mystery behind who he was and i was kind of hoping that it would sort of be like an r-rated batman and it's not really that and i do remember seeing the movie on vhs and having legitimate nightmares for weeks after wow that's part of the reason why i didn't want to see it again because i was like oh boy i don't 
know if I'm going to be able to get through this movie because I do remember some some of the horrific elements of the movie. And uh, yeah, it came right back to me, let me tell you. Yeah, well, we will get into those details now and you can tell us what horrified you most. So the plot summary for this film is as follows. For those of you who have not seen it, when thugs employed by a crime boss lead a vicious assault on Dr. Peyton Westlake, Liam Neeson, leaving him literally and psychologically scarred, an emergency procedure allows him to survive. Upon his recovery, Westlake can find solace only by returning to his scientific work, developing synthetic skin, and seeking revenge against the crime boss. He assumes a phantom Avenger persona called Darkman, who, with valuable facial qualities, is able to infiltrate and sow terror in the criminal community. So, we're going to get into our thoughts on the performances in this film and the cast members, because Sam Raimi at this time, for those who don't know, again, I, I got this from uh, Bruce Campbell's autobiography, but he was very influenced by, like, the Three Stooges, an old screwball and slapstick comedy. That's what he loved to make. So in college, the movies he was making were very much in that style. They were, like, imitation Marx Brothers slash Three Stooges type things. And Bruce Campbell was his star in a lot of those, so he would do a lot of, you know, smashing plates over his head, stuff that came up in the Evil Dead films. So he was not known necessarily as, like, a dramatic director, so you wouldn't quite expect that from this film but it is certainly not a straight adventure film it is not a straight drama it is not a straight horror film it mixes all these elements and maybe you know a little uneven here and there in the performances so obviously our star of this film is liam neeson who at the time of dark man was a relative unknown outside of a bit part in the fantasy cult classic crawl and wow. a turn as the homicidal ghost in high spirits with steve gutenberg which i remember renting back in the day <laughs> but Darkman was his first major leading role, so that's why he was excited to participate in it. He actually said he loved being in the movie. He loved working with Sam. Like, he just thought it was a great experience overall. But what's interesting is apparently Bill Paxton was up for the role of Peyton Westlake as well, but he lost to Nisa due to Nisa's haunted eyes as they said in his emotional presence and i guess they were friends and so bill paxton didn't talk to him for like a year because he wow. beat him out for that role but what was your thought process michael as you see the character because he's our hero is he the most horrifying part of the movie to you just to have to look at him yes he's the most horrifying part bar none and truth be told if you're paying very close attention in this movie and i mean very close because I was trying to very hard. He might have been on set for about two weeks because a lot of his stuff, once he's actually dark man and scarred, I don't think it was him. I think it was like his body double or stunt double or something. And he's just not fully there, I feel like. And this part was absolutely not right for him. It just doesn't feel like a, a Liam Neeson kind of a character. And there's certain elements of the movie when he's in the destroyed lab where he's having like a meltdown and it just doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel natural. And he's just like screaming. It's almost like he's like a like in an opera or like he's at a like he's in on a Broadway stage. I'm like, this doesn't feel natural. And it 
bothered me in a lot of parts. Yeah, it, it's very, very heightened for sure. And again, that's the Sam Raimi style. He's not dealing at this time in quiet moments that you could take seriously 100%. Because, though, just to your point about whether or not he was in the makeup, whether or not he was there underneath the bandages, in this interview with Francis McDormand in Starlog, she says, uh, McDormand was also impressed with Irish actor Neeson, perhaps best known to moviegoers as Daryl Hannah's ghostly husband in High Spirits, the horror film director in Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool, or the deaf-mute defended by Cher and Suspect. For most of Darkman's filming, Neeson was in heavy makeup. His classical stage training came in handy because he had only his body movement and his eyes to convey emotion. Quote, Liam was great, McDormand notes. He had to sit through four hours of makeup every time there was a scene with Darkman. I would have gone nuts. So it was him, Michael? I mean, aside from the stunt work? Like, every time he's in the lab, every time he's in bandages and there's a close-up, it was Nisa doing the work. And in fact, you know, they were saying here it took, you know, three to four hours to put on the makeup. A funny story from behind the scenes, the makeup guy who did all the special effects for the film said that each day after they would take off, you know, because it was like a full face prosthetic for the most part, they would basically just plaster the old face up on the wall of the makeup room, like as a reference. So it would have been like a horror show for you to just walk into that room. Uh, But as he said, by the end of the shoot, the wall was covered in dark man faces. That would have been so wild to see. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, gross. Scary. But the other part, too, you know, you say, like, the the wild emotions, right? And I agree. My first watch of this, I'm like, what is he doing? Like, he does feel like he's going into hysterics at the drop of a hat or that it just seems, like, so wild. Like, the emotion of anger is so over the top, which is heightened by all the special effects they add to those moments. But you have to remember, again, for those who don't understand 100% what Darkman's all about, the origin of his superpower is that he was burned over 40% of his body yeah. so the doctors severed the nerves that feel pain so he yeah. doesn't feel any pain but he isn't indestructible necessarily you know he's still gonna bleed out so speaking of that power set i had a friend in junior high where i used to draw my own comics and pass them around class and then other people in my class started wanting to get in on it so they'd come up to be like i have this idea for a superhero or we'd like collaborate uh, on comics together and one of my buddies lawrence came up with this guy named novocaine man i figured he must have had a lot of dental work done. Novocaine was on his mind. And he's like, yeah, he can't feel any pain because he's all pumped up with Novocaine. That's how he keeps himself fighting. And I was always like, that's great. He doesn't feel the pain, but pain helps us. Pain helps us measure where we're at and so on and so forth. You know, so it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, he's not feeling it, but he's still getting hurt, you know. But Darkman, they say because he now has surges of adrenaline that increases his strength. So maybe that is what protects him from like high falls or getting hit by cars while hanging from a helicopter yeah like the doctor when they're like she's just kind of like doing her rounds in this weird hospital and she like stabs him in the arm she basically says that because she severed this nerve because of that you don't know how strong you are it kind of like unlocks other potential in your body to make you physically stronger and your adrenaline is heightened and you and you like your rage is heightened and your emotions are all, all yeah all like over that's the, the 
trade-off is because you can't feel anything, your body then amplifies what you can feel, the only thing you can feel, which is emotion. And so that's where you start to say, okay, when he has like these sobbing moments and he's like, you know, really like freaking out, you're like, oh, okay, well, that's why it should be ridiculous because it is like so like off the charts from what a normal person would be. So it's almost like you can't fault Liam Neeson for that because that's how it was written. But at the same time, when I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, I wonder if that was offensive or if it was something people that are like bipolar and have other emotional disorders can relate to because like that might be hard for somebody like to say like well i can't relate to that but there might be people that can you know i guess i mean that could happen to people i mean there are the, the moments of his rage are so manic that it like it took me out of it at times because because it happens so quick like it's really and the world around him starts cracking and then yeah. it's like shaking and vibrating and yeah yeah, but, but like you say, I mean, I think it also has to do with expectations, right? Because at this point, when you're coming off a movie like Batman or more straight-ahead action films, you don't expect, like, kind of the quirkiness and the, the heightened reality of this film, you know, that that's presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somebody who was on that other side of it is Frances McDormand, who plays Julie, you know, so she's his love interest who is about to be his fiance when his lab gets blown up, and he flies out, <laughs> like... That, that's a very diehard two moment when he's his body is flying above the flames oh of his God. exploding yeah. lab. <laughs> I want to get into that, but we'll talk about that whole sequence later. But yeah, I got a lot to say about that. Yeah, so, but the issue was with Frances McDormand, so she was a friend of Sam Raimi because she was a girlfriend of one of the Cohen brothers, and they were all good friends who respect each other's work, is how she explained their relationship. But then when they got on set, Sam Raimi says, at first, Raimi assumed that directing McDormand would be, quote, like working with Bruce Campbell, whom I've known since high school, but apparently I didn't know Fran as well as I thought I did. You never know someone until you direct them they had clashes which surprised Raimi quote we're still friends he maintains but we learned a lot about each other in the course of production it was very difficult working together but I have no problem with it the reason it was difficult was that our conception of the best movie to make differed it wasn't as extreme as her wanting to make a comedy and me wanting to make a drama it was just arguing and trying to make the best picture possible interpretation of the character what the character would do in a situation we did have disagreements but they were very healthy but yeah apparently like that there was just a lot of that going on Frances McDormand says like she was just excited to get out of she usually was known for playing like battered and troubled women in films at this point and she mm. wanted to play quote a bimbo girlfriend type and so but she was also trying to add like real humanity to it and if you look at the other performances that's not what Sam Raimi was going for yeah so I, I feel like she was miscast in this role she's playing this like she's in Streetcar Named Desire or like or like a Hitchcock film or citizen kane and it's not it doesn't work and like her reaction to things and her emoting in this film doesn't again feel organic doesn't feel natural it feels very forced and unrealistic and almost unbelievable at times and uh in particular in the moment for which like adam just said Liam Neeson's lab blows up. He gets rocketed out of the building. She's standing there frozen watching this thing. And it does this terrible blue screen where she's just kind of frozen in the moment. And then it dissolves into a 
cemetery and she's got like a, a black kerchief over her head and it's very Hitchcockian or like mm-hmm. Citizen Kane style. But the emotion that the facial is exactly the same. It's very like I don't want to, I don't know if the right word is like vapid or it's just like it just felt flat to me. And I'm just like between the bad visual effect of the transition plus her look didn't didn't jive for me in, in making it feel believable. Yeah, the, the, the blue screen, I think, at this time work was very shoddy and the matting and all that stuff. Just, and you yeah. also, this was like, what, like 16 million was the budget? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fairly low budget, even for that time, for a blockbuster action movie it was what it was being positioned as yeah but if you weren't a fan of francis mcdormand interestingly enough julia roberts actually came in to read for the role of julie but because she and neeson had dated prior to the film for a short time she backed out because it was too awkward to play such intimate scenes together so i mean can you imagine julia roberts doing dark man and then pretty woman in the same year Wow, that's kind of interesting. I mean, <laughs> I assume people wouldn't have seen. I mean, it was number one at the box office, but so, Pretty Woman was number one at the box office for much longer. So I just wonder if one would have washed away the other or darkened uh, hey. the appeal of the other. So yeah, that's that's very interesting. Now the other uh, character, speaking of the dark side, was Larry Drake, who plays the of the crime boss Durant. Now at this time. He was known on TV for playing a mentally challenged character in L.A. Law. LA Law yeah. Did you watch that show? Yes. Well, my parents watched it, so I knew of it and watched it with them. And so, on. yes, so I knew the show. And, and when I saw him in this movie as the villain at the time as a kid, it didn't it didn't connect with me. Like, it, But then watch, rewatching it again as an adult, he's his turn as the villain in this movie is probably some of the best stuff in the whole movie is him. For sure. And you know, Michael, you talk about being horrified as a child. I only saw one episode of L.A. Law, and mm-hmm. it dealt with a very similar situation to Darkman, because in the story, there was some kid who had been caught in a fire, and so they had all this, yeah. like, oh, burn makeup all over him, and he was I on the stand. That. Yeah, I and I, I remember flipping Ooh. the channel on, and I was like, oh, 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 and I've never forgotten that my whole yeah. life. It was so horrifying. Well, I... I did forget that till you just brought it up. <laughs> Thanks. I, I remember that episode of L.A. Law vividly because it was so traumatic. And now you really... <laughs> oh, This is going to be a great Halloween for you, Michael. Ugh, gross. Uh, but yeah, but it's interesting because Larry Drake said that Sam Raimi had not seen L.A. Law. He did not watch that show. So when he came into audition, it was 100% based on his audition skills and his performance. And Raimi had him perform the two Durant scenes, you know, with the revolving door. He basically had him go back and forth. And he said, Sam Raimi said, oh, I could see that you were creating two different characters in the moment. And then Larry Drake's like, I wasn't doing that intentionally, but I'm glad it worked. (laughs) So he got the role. So this is the funny thing about this movie, and this is what's very interesting. As a kid, when I'm watching this, and I see that particular moment, or there's a few other times where Liam Neeson's character of Darkman is supposed to be portraying somebody else, and I'm like, wow, look at the makeup on that. That was amazing. Now, as an adult and not a 10- or 13-year-old kid or whenever I saw this, I realize, like I said, 
Liam Neeson's not in a lot of this movie because whenever he's allegedly wearing somebody else's face, it's just that other actor, you know? Yeah. So, and they're trying to do their best Liam Neeson, essentially, you know? It's like, well, they're definitely tweaking it, yeah. And I, and I will say, you know, like you said, Larry Drake does some amazing work in this movie, but he's also given the most interesting character elements by far i mean like number one everybody remembers he cuts off people's fingers with a cigar trimmer oh man that was that was probably i have to say to this day was probably one of the most interesting like quirks about a villain i've ever seen and i don't know if it's ever been recreated or made in such a dramatic way but like that particular thing it's almost like the bone collector in the the movie the bone collector or the you know that book like but it's just it's so interesting the way that they do it they show it and then later on you see like his collection of fingers (laughs) who's got a ring on there's men's fingers women's fingers and he's like he's like sewn them up so that they don't bleed out i guess or whatever yeah well and he's not like a crazy over-the-top villain right he plays it so cool and low-key and that's what makes him scary throughout the movie you're just like oh this guy's like all business all the time he's just a psychopath so the one thing that i found very interesting that as a kid i did not pick up on but in this re-watching i did larry drake's character is gay oh really i also didn't pick up on that weren't you what was the tip-off for you so you know the guy in in the with the glasses ricky i think his name is in the movie mm-hmm so they're at that restaurant or that big ball, and he's the crime boss, but yet he goes to Ricky and says, what kind of drink do you want? And he, like, goes and gets him his cocktail or whatever. And then about two scenes later, when they're trying to find that guy, because Darkman has killed him, they say, oh, he look, he's looking for him because he's sweet on Ricky. Oh, interesting. I, yeah, I didn't quite make the connection. I thought they were saying he really likes him. He's, he's glad to have him on the team. Yeah, it's like that, that total, I, I didn't make that connection, but you're right. Cause I did expect when he says like, would you like some champagne? He's like, I'd love some. And yeah. I thought, I thought he was like setting him up to like throw the champagne in his face. He's like, you get me champagne or something. Right. You know, but, but that or wasn't like, the case. Or like torture him, but no, yeah. he's actually. He was, wow. Like, that is, yeah, that's, that's pretty progressive. I didn't actually uh, ever catch that. That's cool. Uh, now, what's what's interesting about Larry Drake, though, is so he's the one you remember, but there's actually a bigger bad in the film, which is this guy, Colin Friels, who plays Louis Strack Jr., who's like this developer, this great evil businessman i mean he does that but there's so many evil businessmen in films he's just not quirky enough to stand out among so many interesting faces and that's what this film has and it has to it's about faces and so like everybody in this movie just has such a distinct look and he's just kind of like generic good-looking guy that's evil And he probably has the least amount of scenes in the movie. And he's more or less like your cliche, like Lex Luthor kind of megalomaniac kind of a person. And, you know, I think he has maybe three or four scenes until the climax of the movie. And this is one of the things that always bothers me about when you have a movie like this where you're, you're following the Durant character as your your big bad, right? And then after we figure out that there's a bigger bad, even though this guy doesn't seem that menacing or intimidating or difficult, they make him the hardest character to kill <laughs> for the for the for the protagonist when the real hard guy to kill 
died too early or died very easily. Well, it's, it's Darth Vader and the Emperor, you know? I mean, it's yeah. just kind of a, Darth Vader is cooler. Durant is cooler in this. But also, you know, it's uh, kind of interesting because you talk about he didn't have very many scenes. He had scenes that were cut that showed that he was a weirdo. Like, there's this very famous scene uh, that Bruce Campbell says, like, it was my favorite scene in all the screenings that we watched. But apparently it showed this, you know, Colin Friels had this box of gold coins and he walks out of the shower in a towel and he throws the gold coins on a bed and then whips off his towel and rolls around naked in the gold coins. And you were supposed to go, oh, this guy's messed up. He loves money. (laughs) The studio cut that. They thought that was too far. So the one thing that annoyed me in regards to this particular character is that there's a scene where Frances McDormand and Liam Neeson are talking and she says that there there was a man who who comforted her and it's supposed to be this bad guy this developer but we we never see that in the movie there's like a 5 second moment where he kind of like puts his arm around her sympathetically well, and they it. dance at the party, but yeah, he, he talks about that sort of being therapy, you know, makes right. a, a little bit of a cute joke about that. But you're right. Yeah, they don't spend a lot of time together. Right. So, but yeah, but getting back to like the faces of this movie, is the henchmen in this movie, especially that opening scene, Michael, so many bad guys, like so many gang members all together, you know what I'm saying? Like that is, I mean, Eddie Black's gang, and Eddie Black has like the best just like opening lines yeah. of a film. Like those are hilarious. We won't repeat them here, but yeah. <laughs> but they are funny and he's he's got a great attitude. But yeah, I just love like Durant walking in with like 50 guys in his entourage and then like his main four or five dudes and it's interesting um you know the long-haired blonde guy his name is uh dan bell his character's name is smiley in the movie but he went on to be a henchman in the mask he was one of the crew guys in wayne's world like he's so distinct yeah so this is something that i was interested like the movie opens up with a robocop level shootout (laughs) where people are just getting blown to bits rammed with cars and it it's supposed to establish that durant is this like big time gangster like they 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 all get frisked down and stuff like that and like this is this bizarre thing the gang that comes out of the warehouse some of them have guns some of them have pistols one guy has nunchucks <laughs> yeah when, they, when they're when they're frisking them all they're taking uh, out all their weapons and they're yeah. just falling to the ground yeah yeah but, like, they're trying to establish that Durant is this, like, big bad. And they go inside, and nobody's got any guns because they've, they've allegedly frisked them. But this was kind of clever, and it's very campy, and it's very comic booky in a set, in a way. It's probably one of the most comic booky things in the movie is one guy in, on Durant's gang has got a wooden leg. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's fake because he kind of, like, walks in with a limp. And then the guy that Adam just mentioned pulls the leg off and it's a machine gun and they just start <laughs> lighting people up with it i was like wow that is like real comic book nerdiness right there but it, it is it was, now it was i gotta clever. tell you a really cool fun fact about that michael so obviously the actor they hired was not a one-legged actor okay that's not how he got the gig so they had to build him a harness you know that bent his leg back to hide it and then he just had to literally hop around for hours in these scenes and he said in order to prepare for that extension you know or however you want to put it of his leg you know to bend it that way 
away for that long. For months leading up to the filming, he stretched out his ligaments through like yoga techniques Mm -hmm. where he would just like lay back on the ground with his, you know, his foot and his leg tucked behind him and all this stuff because yeah, like, you know, otherwise it's going to cramp up stuff. So I mean, he literally had to change his body to be a dark man as the one-legged guy with the machine gun leg, you know? For one scene. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Commitment. (laughs) Now, um, another character that you you brought up earlier, the, the Rick character, Ted Raimi, who's Sam Raimi's brother. Now, over the years, he he has gotten all his acting work through nepotism, but he is always great. He's always one of those great. characters that he is so fun to see, like whether he was Joxer on Xena, I always loved when he would yes. show up there, or the Spider-Man films as like the guy that J. Jonah Jameson just hates and wants to beat up, you know? Uh, Daily Bugle, it's hip, it's now, it's wow. Like, I love that whole... Yeah. That's like the best part of Spider-Man 3, I feel like, unfortunately. He's one of those actors that's kind of like Ron Howard's brother, who just kind of pops up in, in like his brother's films all the time. But every time he's recognizable, he has some great moments and great lines, and you're just like... I love that guy. I don't even know who he is. He's just the same guy in every movie. (laughs) And he doesn't do quite as much in this movie as he gets to do later on. But I do have to say, since we are a Wizard Magazine podcast, he also is almost a dead ringer for Garib Seamus. Like, if they were making Garib Seamus the movie, Ted Raimi is the man you cast. Yeah, for sure. So the most notable part of his time in this movie is how Darkman kills him. And this is really the first person that Darkman actually kills. And he kind of like, somehow he, he pulls him into a sewer, and he kind of like holds him over to kind of like get interrogate him. And then he lifts him up, and he's holding him up outside of the sewer drain as cars are whizzing by. And in a very Evil Dead style, the character is kind of bouncing back and forth until a tractor trailer comes by and literally runs him over and rips him in half. Yeah, well, and the line here is great, because he's like, I already told you everything! And the dark man's like, let's pretend you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and then holds him up there, yeah. So it's pretty, you know, you see the dark man is not a merciful hero. He yeah. is out for revenge in the, in the, the darkest of ways, if you yeah. will. Now, it wouldn't be a Sam Raimi production without a Bruce Campbell cameo. He was up for the role, but was not a big enough name in Hollywood's eyes to even be considered. So he did not play Darkman. And in fact, uh, a lot of the people who, uh, like the makeup guy, he had worked on the Evil Dead films. He's like, I just, I actually made makeup based on Bruce Campbell, because I just assumed he would be playing the character. Mm. And then they hired some Irish guy and I had to change it all. But uh, Bruce Campbell, you know, obviously at the very end, he plays the final face of Darkman as he disappears into the crowd away from Francis McDormand's character. But... Campbell also did a lot of ADR work, recording voices after the fact in the editing phase, and so he did like all like the bad guy death grunts and screams of terror and everything else. That was him, as well as for the TV edit of the movie, he did a lot of replacement dialogue for Darkman. Really? So as Bruce Campbell puts it, I technically played Darkman, <laughs> both his face, you know, and That's his voice. Now that 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 moment though, like honestly, it was probably the perfect person they could have cast to be that final face of Darkman because his face is so recognizable in particular with Sam Raimi films that like when you see it even though you hear Liam Neeson's voice 
you're like, oh, I know who that is. Okay, that's 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 who he's disguised as right now. That's awesome. I love it. That that was cool. That was a really cool moment, and it was very interesting the way they did it in. I guess it's a New York City street. It kind of maybe Chicago, wherever it's supposed to be taking place, like whatever the the fake city that's supposed to look like something else kind of felt like. But it was a good moment. Yeah, and it's one of those things. If you want to imagine a shared Raimi universe, maybe he was being Ash, and Darkman is the one that went to that cabin out in the woods and was terrorized by the Deadites. <laughs> Who knows? So, do you want to talk about a little filmmaking critique of this movie? I think this is important, Michael. You're a man who went to film school. You have studied the techniques. So what, let me just ask you, what do you think of Raimi's trademarks of whip pans and snap zooms and Dutch angles and attaching the cameras to boards and rods and running them in different directions, flinging the camera all over the place? So it works in a Sam Raimi film. I don't know if it works every time he uses it in this particular Sam Raimi film. There are certain elements that kind of take you out of it because it's it feels like it's supposed to be an Evil Dead kind of a movie with those sort of moves because they're so ingrained in that style for those type of movies. And I think that's just like he has his thing. He does use certain things of that like in the Spider-Man films years later, but not to this extent. And it didn't always need to be there. Uh, and it, it's a choice and it's his style and I get it and I respect him as a filmmaker for doing it. I don't think that it always needed to be there personally. Yeah, I mean, it does draw a lot of attention to itself, that's for sure. It can take away from the story, like you say, when the effects don't look good, like at the fair, after he knocks over, you know, the milk bottle cans, yeah. and he's freaking out, and it, like, zooms into his eyes, and then the, everything starts cracking, and the red lights are shining through, and, and, you know, he's, like, back and forth, back and forth, like, real fast, you know, between the characters. That's where Frances McDormand, that's the one time where she seems like a cartoon character. Yeah. He bends the guy's fingers back, then that guy screams, and it goes to Liam Neeson, then it goes to Francis McDormand, and everybody's like, ah, 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 you know, yeah. like, everybody just freaking out, like, so much, it's so heightened. It, it felt like one of those moments where, I'll, I'll use, like, a, a Total Recall reference, where, like, I thought one of their eyes were gonna burst out of their skull or something like that, or some. it just, it felt very cheesy, and sort of like, like I was expecting some sort of, like, bad prosthetic makeup to happen, and then, in the moment when he during that particular sequence, when he throws the, you know, carny through the back of the booth, it happens so quick that if, if you're not paying attention, you miss it because so many other things were just happening that your brain hasn't fully processed it. And that kind of annoyed me a little bit. Well, let me ask you this, Ed. What did you think did work from a filmmaking perspective? Is there a scene or a moment or just a choice that you felt like, you know what, that's some pretty good movie making right there? Well, that last shot of the movie, I think, is probably one of the best in the whole film, for sure. The other thing that I thought worked pretty well is the sequence in which Darkman is kind of watching that ballroom sequence, and then the whole thing with killing Rick. That portion played out pretty well for me, and I, I did like it, because they use sort of the 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 Sam Raimi trademarks in particular when you know Rick is kind of hanging above the sewer drain and it worked and I was okay with that it was fine that was good also in the lab before they blow the lab up that they use certain things about it that that work well and and the chaoticness of when Durant's guys come in they kind of torture Peyton and they use a lot of Sam Raimi trademarks that was fine too but I want to talk about that in particular 
because it's so out of left field why they go and attack him and kill him or try to kill him that it makes no sense to the movie. Like, they don't really establish it clearly enough in the scenes prior why they're going after this guy. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a very quick scene, like, when they're together, Francis McDormand and Liam Neeson, you know, where you see her looking over the paperwork, and then they say, you know, we're just here for documents. You know, so, like, they, they make it clear, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, he's not telling you because he doesn't know, but you're just going to attack him and then take him to the point. But I, I think what it is is because then they found them, they're like, well, we have him, let's kill him. We don't need him to identify us. But yeah, it's it because, like you said, yeah, it does happen very very quickly that you're not you don't sit with it for a long time or you don't like see him in the lab and then see the papers there and you're yeah. like uh-oh he's going to be the next target like they don't establish that that's like, true i honestly thought that julie was going to be the target because she's a lawyer and she was maybe like trying to represent somebody else is kind of what i felt like and then like they go after this lowly scientist that does it just didn't track like there's definitely a scene or two that happened in in between that time that hit the cutting room floor and wasn't put back in because it's it's lost there's a moment in there that i feel like something needed to be established why this guy what was so special about this guy other than that like you know reading the paperwork for for less than a second i'm like that kind of bummed me out i just didn't get it now what did you think about the double mask fake outs that happens a couple times in this movie where it's like there'll be somebody's face coming up and they're like oh it's you and then you take off the mask oh it's you and then you take off the mask again and it's another person you know like the, like he does a lot of tricking people with his mask technology i wanted to know how it fit over his head with that many masks on top of each other <laughs> yeah it, it wouldn't have looked right and how would how would each face because you know your jawbone or your jawline is different than my jawline so if i'm wearing your face but i'm wearing another face on top of that how does each face move the right way that doesn't make any sense yeah that that's a limitation of technology because if it had been years later with the cg version of the mission impossible mask you could have bought it a little bit more and and on top of that at the end or toward the end when dark man is hanging on the side of the helicopter but his face is liam neeson's face then durant pulls the the mask off and he's got all the bandages and everything <laughs> yeah. all over his face I'm like, how is that possible? Like, if if this is an exact copy of Liam Neeson's head, right, figure it's the same scale and dimensions, how would it fit comfortably and accurately over all those gauze and masks? <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a flaw there. In addition to that, like, if you saw in the beginning of the movie when his hands get like badly burned and destroyed, mm-hmm. but he's wearing he's wearing like a skin glove over it. How how does it fit? Because his hands kind of swelled up and got big. And even when he's in the glo- the the wraps, his fingers are gigantic, and they don't really f- like. I don't see how they would have fit underneath a prosthetic hand of some sort, you know. Although, speaking of which, there is a very cool shot where there's one hand that's the gloved hand, and the other hand that is the totally burned and scarred hand, and he's typing on a keyboard. Yeah. That's a really fun effect. I couldn't tell if that was, a, like, a an armature-type hand, or if it was a you know, stop-motion-type yeah. burned hand on that. So, one of the things that really bothered me, and... You're supposed to be talking about what you like, Michael. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll save what I would bother. <laughs> Is there anything else you like? Uh, I thought at times, 
Francis McDormand and Liam Neeson when they're together, their chemistry felt good. Like it was believable. I I, I wasn't always on board with it, but at times I felt pretty believable. I really liked the the quiet moments of the movie. In particular, the first time where Darkman is playing Durant and he goes to the like the, I guess like the Chinese market to get money from you know the mm-hmm. Chinese or who whomever he's going after. The slow buildup of his rage was really really nice, and then you see like the bubbling on the side of the face and the steam kind of coming. That was kind of cool. That was really interesting moment because it wasn't it wasn't like super violent. It was just kind of like this quiet little thing, and then the way he like. He cuts the cigar, but he cuts it really, really short. He's like, I want the thing before I finish this cigar. Like, even though it's not Liam Neeson playing, you know, Durant, it's Larry Drake playing what he thinks Liam Neeson would play Durant as, (laughs) which is really challenging. Like, how would this actor play my character to come off as if he's sort of like my character? And that was really, really terrific. Like that, those kind of moments were fantastic. Now, I gotta say for me, Michael, the one you have to agree, the helicopter stunt sequence at the end of the film was pretty amazing. I mean, that just, just from a practical stunt perspective, right? It, it is pretty amazing, but at times again, it took me out of it because he, they, at one point, so Darkman is hanging on a cable, essentially, with a foot basically on a hook, right? And he gets slammed into the side of a building, right? And yes, okay, his his abilities or his strength is heightened. Great, fine. I I can suspend my disbelief and buy that. But how could he possibly have held on that long? Like even even if he doesn't feel the pain, like his hands would get tired or getting rip, whipped around like that. He he doesn't have super strength. His abilities are heightened. How did he hold on? Uh, he's got adrenaline grip, Michael. That's his adrenaline uh, surging into his fingers. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I honestly thought the best part, and I knew it was like it was very telegraphed how it was going to happen. You know, I knew Durant was going to blow up the helicopter, the, the the police helicopter, but nobody, and I mean nobody, the Dark Man must have been shot at four hundred times. <laughs> nobody could hit him. Even if he's standing still, they, they were the worst gun-toting bad guys I've ever seen. They Nobody must work could... for Cobra or the Empire, because that is how it goes. But I got to tell you this, though, Michael. Let me just celebrate the helicopter sequence for what could have been. This is a what-if moment. So obviously we know Sam Raimi went on to direct the Spider-Man films. What if he had directed the Spider-Man films just a few years after this? Could you imagine how awesome it would have looked if there was a stuntman who they swung around practically through office buildings on a wire web that was in a Spider-Man costume, but actually just dangling from a helicopter. You just never saw the helicopter. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's how they did the web swinging. That would have been amazing to me because it would have been real web swinging. That would have looked cool. Yes, I agree. I will agree with you there. That would have been very cool and very interesting. You know, legally, I would worry the studio would be afraid of that. But <laughs> Well, they weren't afraid on Broadway. <laughs> yeah, but look how, how look how that went. So. <laughs> how about this? Spider Man turned off the Dark Man. Ah. Uh? <laughs> 
But it, I mean, it's a very interesting scene and it, it is well done in certain parts of it. The, like I said, part of it is telegraphed though. When I saw there's a part where he's, they've lowered him low enough that he's kind of like running on the street or running over cars. And then you see a tractor trailer. I'm like, oh yeah, Darkman's going to hook this cable to the tractor trailer and this is how we're going to get rid of Durant. I, and I had forgotten about this from when I saw this movie 25 years, 25 plus years ago. And he hooks it to the top of the tractor trailer, which conveniently had this perfect crossbar. And I was like, growing up in a family of construction, I have never seen something like that on a tractor trailer before <laughs> in my life. But I was like, and I was like sitting there and I'm like, and I had to call my dad. I'm like, dad, have you ever had a tractor trailer that had this weird kind of like steel crossbar on the top of the trailer? He's like, no, why would you have that for? <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. It's movie magic convenience. So anyway, he hooks it right under the thing. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, they're going to find a tunnel. And sure enough, the tunnel and then the helicopter rams into it and blows up. Burn in hell. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's. And it, it's a very diehard sort of explosion, and and yeah. it, it was it was good. I, I was cool with it. It was fine. It was you. That was probably the best visual effect you could have gotten at that time for that particular moment, and I was fine with it. The part that I was a little confused by is the the helicopter hits the thing, but the cable still attached to the truck. There's no element of the of the helicopter still traveling with them. It just disintegrated. That was a good explosion, Michael. That was a quality explosion. Nothing left. But that's the weird thing, too. But I love the cut that Sam Raimi makes that goes directly from that to Durant at the construction site at night. So now you're like, wait, he survived? You know, there's like no explanation. He's just got a little limp, you know, and then it's revealed it was actually Darkman being Durant again. But I think that's kind of fun. I mean, you know that it's got to be Darkman, but at the same time for that brief moment you're like wait huh what did i miss we saw two scenes earlier his lab with all the faces totally explode and let me add that the faces only last for 99 minutes in the sun though in the sun or in light so if he keeps him in the dark he can... so i think he just had one behind his back under his jacket he had a durant stashed there that was very convenient because he didn't seem like he had it when he when he got hooked to the helicopter before his lab blew up. Uh, I, I'll let it slide. I'll suspend my disbelief. Again, it's kind of like the total recall kind of an element where he just pulls on another head and whatever. I, now, Michael, I can't believe there is anything left for you to complain about with this movie. Did you have the ultimate thing that upset you the most? Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's actually in this scene. So what's the the developer's name again i totally forgot strack yeah strack sure he is firing basically like a giant nail gun for framing beams in a, in a in a scaffolding right and they're giant bolts like you'd see like railroad tie level bolts right and he is firing this thing like it's an assault rifle and he's just shooting them off like crazy and he must have shot 50 off he only hits Darkman one time in the palm of his hand and nails his hand to the scaffolding. And Darkman uses his heightened strength, I don't want to call it super strength, but heightened strength, and pulls the thing out of the scaffolding and he starts fighting the, the bad guy. But one shot later, the spike is not in his hand anymore. 
and there's no hole in his hand. I'm pretty sure he ripped through his hand to get it off there. That's the point because he doesn't feel pain. But my whole thought during that was like, could he? I mean, he, he didn't have his bandages on his face at the time. And I was like, he probably should have wrapped that up like in the aftermath when he's talking to Francis McDormand and everything. Yeah. There's not even, but there's not even a hole in his hand. Like this, that thing, that bolt was so big. He would have had no palm and no fingers left. It would have literally severed the whole thing off. And that really annoyed me. Like, it it just didn't work for me, and it bothered me. And as I mentioned, the actual prosthetics of Darkman were, like, so horrific, so horrifying. There was literal points where I have my hand over the screen where Liam Neeson's character was, and I was just looking at whoever was on the other side of the frame because it was so grotesque. It, was it hard didn't to build watch. a sympathy for the character for you, Michael. No, it grossed me out, and I was—I just couldn't watch it. I was—I was having a hard time. No with it. gross heroes. You like, can't handle Swamp Thing. Ah, uh, I can handle Swamp Thing if I watch it during the daytime. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I literally had to hide part of his face because it grossed me out. And the way he sort of runs off after after that is is fine. Like, you know, after he kills the bad guy and there's a line where the bad guy says, oh, you can't let me go because then you'll be just as bad as me. And you're, you know, he, so anyway, he lets him go regardless and he, the bad guy dies. And so he's not a redeemable character because of that. Well, and he says that because Francis McDormand is like, I want our life back. You know, she says she wants to be with him. And he's like, I've basically realized I have changed. Right. And I'm not, you know, he says, you know, Peyton, Peyton is, is dead. dead. Yeah. yeah. So he's and, like, he's like basically admitting he's like, there is only dark man now. Yeah. And he runs away. So the next, literally the next shot is her exiting the the construction site the like in the it's next daytime day. yeah <laughs> and and this was probably like maybe nine o'clock at night to maybe 10 30 in the morning the next day and i'm like i i don't get it there's no police that i can tell there's no there's no police in this movie at all at like, all where are the police it's just like the criminals can run uh, freely through the streets and do whatever they want and have giant gang fights on the waterfront no firefighters no no ambulances it's just like just mass hysteria city run by the gangs and and developers I mean, most of all, you hate the movie because it's gross. That, that's what I hear in the end. There, there are logic issues. You, you can suspend your disbelief, but he looks gross. So he looks gross. You know, I also hated the fact that even though his, his lab has been blown up in this movie twice, his lab was blown up when he was blown out of it and, and becomes <laughs> Dark Man, and then it blows up again before during the helicopter sequence. But what I don't understand is, and this is what really confused me, the lab where we see him in the beginning of the movie that he gets blown into the water is in a totally different location than the lab when he is Dark Man recreating the face. Well, he, he carried everything over there in a shopping cart. Did you miss that part? He went to his old lab. He filled up. He went shopping with all his burned out equipment. I missed that. I missed yeah, that. Yeah, then he walked into the refinery over a bridge. Yeah, I, I missed that part. And I just don't understand how he got the power. Like, he threw basically a lit newspaper into a pit, <laughs> and it becomes this flame that just continually burned perpetually without any ever stopping. And that I, I'm like, all right, whatever. 
suspend my disbelief, fine, it's his back cave, and he figured out how to, but how did he get all the equipment to work again? Like, how did he get the power? How did he do the rendering? Well, they do show, like, where they have the countdown to the rendering of his actual face mask of himself, that it's, like, so many hours, so it's showing you it's, like, over weeks. It was going to take weeks to render it. So he was doing all that for weeks, I'm sure stealing everything he had to steal. Actually, it was more than weeks. It It said... 571 days. I'm not good at math. How many months is that? That's almost two years. <laughs> it said wow. 571 That's true. Days. Wow. 365 days a year, and he was in there 574. Wow. Okay, yeah. But, but, yet, but yet, while it's making that, while the computer is processing one face, his face, he was able to make a half a dozen other faces <laughs> without issue. Michael, I think you need to write in a letter to Magic Words addressed to Sam Raimi, and you need to lay out all the inconsistencies in his film Darkman from 1990. Yeah, I, I, I might have to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll just do a little time travel as well. Yes. All so, right, so... Oh, wait, you got more! You, we have, why can you have more? <laughs> I, you know... Do I have more? I I always have more, but you know I I can I can let it go. I, Let's I, wrap I, it up. <laughs> you know. So the one thing that I wanted to say is there's there's stuff that happens beyond this movie. There are, believe it or not, and I'll let Adam tell this. There are sequels to this movie. Yeah. So yeah. So here's what happened. So Darkman did very well at the box office, number one the weekend of release, and it did also very well on VHS on the rental market. And so actually, it took five years, to, I guess, to get all the rental data. But they decided we can we can do it again. So they made a direct to video Darkman Two: The Return of Durant, which did not feature Liam Neeson, but Larry Drake. His character's name is in the title, so of course he came back. I do not know the circumstances under which Durant survived because I have not seen this, but taking over for Liam Neeson was Arnold Vosloo, a.k.a. Emotep, from the Mummy films. Yes, from the Brendan Fraser Mummy film. He was the new Peyton Westlake, a.k.a. Darkman. And he played it actually for both sequels because the third Darkman film, Die, Darkman, Die. I remember that name. (laughs) It's a great title. The bad guy in that movie was Jeff Fahey, a.k.a. The Lawnmower Man. So that makes two actors known best for playing mentally challenged characters that became a nemesis for Darkman. I just thought that was a weird coincidence. That is a weird coincidence. Darkman versus the Lawnmower Man? That would have been pretty fun. (laughs) That would have been very interesting. It would have been challenging for Darkman because the Lawnmower Man is mostly a computer in a, in a way <laughs> i know but maybe the lawnmower man gets into his computer and he starts making his own masks and then what is he doing he's forcing maybe he's blackmailing dark man there's so much you can do with it but there was also <laughs> a failed tv pilot for which larry drake returned again as durant uh but it seemed like it was more of a 
continuation of the first film. So it was like Durant was back, you know, but he he obviously wasn't dead again, even though he had been killed twice in two consecutive films. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it made sense that they would try to take it to TV because in the years following Darkman, Sam Raimi became a big television producer for syndicated action shows. You know, Hercules, The Legendary Journey, Xena, Warrior Princess, Cleopatra, 2525, Jack of All Trades. You remember these. But also Mantis and the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. for the Fox Network. Oh, I love Briscoe County Jr. I also like Mantis as well. And I did and I did watch Xena and I did watch Hercules. I do remember Cleopatra 20, was it 2525 you said? Yeah. The other one I don't know though. That one I don't remember. Yeah, that was another Bruce Campbell vehicle that didn't take off, Jack of all trades. Yeah, but anyway, it was one of those things where, yeah, he was developing a lot of TV. This one just, it kind of borrowed a lot of footage from the original movie as far as stunts. Arnold Vosloo did not play Darkman in the TV version. He's going to stick to films, I guess. But um, also, Darkman lived on in a series of expanded universe novels. And anyway, so there were, there were a series of those. And since we are a comics podcast, we should also mention that Darkman had a movie adaptation by Marvel Comics. That's what they did, man. You had a movie, they're going to put it together for you on the printed page. And that led to an ongoing series three years later, written by Kurt Busiek and with art by Javier Saltares, who we haven't talked about since the early days of Wizard. Yeah, seriously. But I was able to pick up the first three issues of, of course this you series. Were. Of course yes. You were. <laughs> How could I not, right? The books, they're really high quality, just like actual construction of the book it's got like very thick cardstock covers the paper inside is glossy and nice like it's it's just like the art presentation of the cover is really fantastic but the stories are very cool also so this first arc that i have you know initially deals with the aftermath of the original film and you have dark man he's attacking all these underworld people he's basically going to the mobsters and saying where's durant you know they're like he's dead but dark man won't accept it but one cool thing that they pick up on is Eddie Black who got his fingers chopped off by Durant at the beginning of the first movie now has metal gun hands that shoot bullets out of the fingers (laughs) that that tracks yeah bullet leg to bullet fingers you know oh boy but the cool bad guy that Darkman is fighting in this, it's a subplot about someone who is burning people alive, you know, in this urban area for being witches. And it turns out it's the police commissioner who is being hypnotized into, quote, past life regression, where he believes himself to be a witch hunter for hire from the 1600s who is cleansing the world of evil. And he has a showdown with Darkman, and they fight in an alley, and the bad guy has a poison-tipped sword that he stabs into dark man you know it doesn't hurt him but it's poison so it knocks him out he wakes up in a dungeon and he can't figure out how to escape he can't quite get his adrenaline up just thinking about the actual victims of this guy so he imagines julie being burned at the stake and then he goes into a rage and he breaks out and ultimately he has another showdown but this one is more public and so the police commissioner guy is shown to the public as being crazy 
so he loses his job. He ends up going to jail. So, but it, it was a really fun story. Like, I really enjoyed it, and it felt very of the world, you know, because he's still following Julie, keeping an eye on her. There's a doctor at this hospital where she becomes a lawyer, and, like, he has an interest in her. Basically, Darkman plays Cyrano de Bergerac for this guy, and he's like, give her this book. She always loved this book, you know, and all these things to kind of, like, because he wants her to have someone who she could love and not be disgusted by. So, anyway, very good, very good. If you like the Darkman movie, highly recommend the Darkman ongoing series. But, uh, final thoughts, Michael. Could you recommend this to people in your life that would like this type of movie? Let me preface this by saying that I was talking to a friend of mine today who said that there's a lot of elements of Darkman that lend itself to stuff like The Count of Monte Cristo. And when I looked at it from that sort of a lens of, you know, a man out for revenge and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, it gave it a little bit more credit. I don't know if Sam Raimi was thinking Count of Monte Cristo when he was making this film. I, I do feel like there's a lot of elements of the movie that were cut out and it sacrificed some of the story in the editing. But if you like action horror, I'd say you could check it out if you could find it on streaming. I know that it's on, on sci-fi on demand. You can watch it there. Me personally... I would never if I had never have to watch it again, I'm fine with that. But I know people that might enjoy it, especially around the ho- like Halloween time, because it is kind of a horror movie in, in certain aspects. I just felt like there's certain things that just didn't work with me. And I think it was a lot of it was just the casting wasn't right, in particular with Liam Neeson and Francis McDormand. I felt like knowing them now 30 years later as these iconic oscar-winning actors who have won multiple oscars and golden globes they weren't the right people for this kind of a film yeah and i i will say that this is a film that i now that i own the blu-ray i can see myself watching it over and over again because this is how i like my action films i can't get on board with an action film that is just like all macho you know like we're just destroying people we got evil evil people and they're doing bad stuff you know and like yeah, it's like i gotta have some humor and some goofiness in my action movies and sam raby delivers that for me it makes it more palatable and at the same time i do think it has some heart like you say it's, it's kind of uneven and maybe the casting could have gone a different way but at the same time i think they sort of accomplished what they were going for but because the movie was taken away from sam raby like to this day he won't participate in interviews he won't talk about it because it was such a damaging experience for him you know like he really thought he had so much going for him and then you know they kind of swatted him down so i feel like the people who enjoy it who have enjoyed it for many years i should say are very justified because it is high entertainment um whether or not it is a solid film overall i would say no but i do think it is a very watchable film that can be enjoyed again again and again if you could get past the gross face yeah. of the but you know if you could watch spawn michael yeah you gotta be able to watch dark man come I, on I, I would say if 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 you do like great acting see it alone for larry drake's performance because he literally steals every scene that he's in and he's probably the most interesting part of the whole movie and it's definitely worth seeing just for his portion of the film because he's so, so such an interesting character yeah so i would say go with that now let me ask you a question should sequel quest do a 
Darkman reboot or Darkman 4 kind of a what-if scenario? I think, yeah, I saw my other podcast. Should we try to make a Darkman that works, and should we invite you on? Yes, Michael, you can give us your pitch for an actual Darkman film that you would want to see that is somehow less gross. I, okay, we'll, we'll we'll talk about it down the road. But I think <laughs> if if that's something that, that the boys of Sequel Quest want to do, I'd be on board to have that conversation. All right. Well, we want to thank everybody for joining us for this little Halloween treat. We th- hope you had fun with our discussion. We know a lot of you were looking forward to it. And uh, we had quite an array of opinions. But we want to hear yours. So be sure to find us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. And we will be back with our regularly scheduled episode next Wednesday. But until next time, what is it about the dark? What secrets does it hold? of the Retro Network.